episode 155 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Pilot the Pilot is brought to you by the Finer Points. These guys are constantly adding content to the Ground School app. Check it out at learnthefinerpoints.com. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. Today's podcast is with my good friend and arguably the best CFI I know, Jason Miller from Learn the Finer Points. This is an Ask a CFI edition where I'll be doing these throughout uh, the next coming weeks, months, whatever. To know about this, you need to follow us on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot. I put up a question box and you have the opportunity to ask me and Jason a question. Now, you know, I'm not a CFI, so Jason is acting as the CFI, because like I said, he's one of the best in the business. And then I'm acting as the professional pilot, not saying that Jason's not a professional pilot, but kind of the take and the, the how you can apply what a CFI is teaching you to normal day, everyday aviation outside of CFI to student relationship. So I hope you enjoy these and please follow, like I said, Instagram. So you have the opportunity to ask a question next. You can also email me pilot pilot HQ at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And without any further ado, here's Jason Miller. Jason, thanks for coming on, man. Awesome. No, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I'm excited. I think this is going to be pretty beneficial to a lot of people because, you know, a lot of people have some questions where they might feel embarrassed about asking. Um, they might, every, when I was a student, I always thought that my questions were stupid or if I had to ask, maybe no one else has the same question, but it turned out to be farther, couldn't have been farther from the truth. Usually my, what I thought was a stupid question was a question that a lot of people had as well and uh, wanted answered. So I think this could be a good way to anonymously, or we can even say the names eventually of uh, the questions I have and, and talk a little bit. Yeah, totally. I don't, you know, we don't necessarily have to say the names. I'm happy to right. do it or not. But yeah, um, I got some good questions too. I know we put this up on both of our Instagram feeds. Um, so, but I'm, I'm going to let you draw. Just let me know if you right. want any of mine. Sounds good. We can, maybe we can go back and forth every once in a while. If you have a really good one. We'll start off with a, we'll start off with a big one right here. Here is a, a very common question and it's a good question to ask and have answered. So when you are starting your training, whether you're starting your private, your instrument, your commercial, or you're just in your training, the question is what are common student pilot mistakes, which I can avoid. And this one's going to be more tailored toward you. I can might be able to say some mistakes that I had when I was in my training, but you see students all the time. So you kind of yeah. probably understand the mentality that a student should have to get their training done as fast as possible or, or some things that they can avoid to save them some time, save them some money in the future. So why don't you talk a little bit about what you would recommend uh, a new student pilot coming in of some tips that, uh, for stuff they can avoid? Yeah, for sure. Let's. Um, I'm going to keep it to just three things that yeah. popped into my head right away. Um, and the first one is sort of mechanical. Uh, the other two are probably more important. But the mechanical one is I think everybody has a tendency to just grab the yoke too tightly. <laughs> so you see people like with a, like a death grip on the yoke and there are so many things downstream of that, that will be solved. If you just have a lighter grip, you know, from trim to landing finesse to holding your altitude. I mean, just, it goes on and on and on and it can all be traced back to a tight grip. So sometimes what I do with my students is kind of get them to fly around like that for a while. You know, um, it's a little bit cruel, I know, but <laughs> just get them to like, you know, like grab on with that, like a, like a pen in between their fingers. Um, so anyway, working on having a light grip is one. Um, but these other two that I'm going to mention are probably more important and are by far, I'll tell you by far the most common mistake people make. 
is they get in their own way. And it's a personality issue. It's not a flight training issue, but your instructor knows what they want you to do. Your instructor knows the product they want to create. And if I had a dollar for every time I said to somebody, um, hey, I need you to uh, lift the left wing before you turn so we can clear the blind spot. And that person goes, well, yeah, but I was, um, you know, I saw back there, I was doing this thing. And then we end up having a 10 minute conversation about <laughs> whatever story they had, why they didn't yeah. do it or whatever. Just say, okay, and do it next time. Right. And if it's uh, really an issue, if you're thinking to yourself, well, man, I did that thing or whatever. Tell me on the ground afterwards, say, hey, back there, you were telling me to, to do the, the wing lift thing, but you missed it. I actually did it or whatever it is. But most people, can't just lay down and take instruction and it's so I think part of uh, getting through this thing fast and spending less money is like learning how to be a good student and usually that's just listening to your instructor and don't fight back you know yeah for sure yeah and then the last thing if we're doing three is uh, preparation in between lessons so uh, people tend to think of it like horseback riding where they 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 come and they do it and then they don't do it again until they come back the next time. Um, and it's much more like a college lecture. It's like you came to your lesson, you did all of these things. Hopefully your instructor is good and cares about you enough to give you a nice thorough debriefing uh, during which you should take notes. And then you have about three hours of study for every one hour you spent in the airplane. And if you do those last two things that I just mentioned, if you learn how to take instruction well and just you know, take what your instructor's giving you. If you make notes in the debrief and then you actually go put time into those notes in between lessons, you'll just mm -hmm. be blown away. You'll be blown away at how fast you can do this thing. So yeah. um, anyway, those are, those are three thoughts right there. I'll piggyback on two of those. The second one you said, uh, I like to think of it as constructive criticism. That's a skill that you can learn and that you need to learn because the only way you're going to get better is if you have an instructor that's actually going to give you proper and constructive criticism, then they're saying this not to tear you down. They're saying this to point out your faults. So you know what they are. Sorry, my dog just ran into the camera, but shook. <laughs> they're saying this so you know what you need to fix. And it's not a personal yeah. attack. Um, it's It's... Almost right away, you might think it's a personal attack just because you might be embarrassed or you might know that you messed up and you're hoping they didn't notice, but don't take it personally. Take it as uh, a way for you to get better. Understand that it might be a weakness of yours. And if someone's pointing it out, they're only pointing it out for the betterment of your flying and for your safety. So take that and just keep going with it. And then the third thing, what you said, I totally agree with that. That's something that I struggled with when I was doing my training. I was terrible at self-study. I kind of thought like, all right, cool. I'm done with that flight. Now I'm going to go do football, do school. Then I'll come back and fly again. And I'll be at the same level, if not better than what I was before. And that was hardly the case. When I was done with football, when I graduated college and I went back down to Charlotte to do the rest of my training, I finally understood that if I put in extra time, and it doesn't have to be crazy time, just read up on a lesson, watch some YouTube videos, or just keep actively thinking about what you're doing. You can kind of do chair flying all day. I mean, you don't have to actively study. Just keep your brain active with uh, with aviation and kind of uh, simulation flying, if you, if you must say, and, and just keep getting better and keep it in your brain and you will definitely pay off in the long run. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, it's funny too. I started using a while, like, well, well, a long time ago, I started using Google spreadsheets to keep notes for my students. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like in Silicon Valley, I got all these guys that are like high, you know, they have like massive amounts of work to do. Like they're really busy. In some cases, they're running three or four companies or mm -hmm. they're like C-level executives or whatever. So it's like the minute our feet hit the ground, their phone starts buzzing. 
is they take it off of, you know, do not do disturb. And I'd be debriefing them and they're just like sitting there reading their phone. So I thought, well, I'm going to just write this down. Like if you're, if you're too busy to listen and make notes, right, I'm just <laughs> going to make notes and I'll make notes and I'll, sh- I'll share it with them so that at least they can go back and look at that. So maybe, you know, folks can even get their instructors doing something like that. Just ask. Yeah. And, and it's, I think, I think it's worth paying an, your instructor an extra 20 minutes to like, write some notes for you that you can look at all week long before you come back for sure. to the next lesson. Yeah. It's going to yeah, save I definitely agree. Sure. I, I would say that was a weak part in, in my training. I don't know if it was me and my instructor. We didn't really have that understanding of taking notes. It was kind of just remember everything I said in the flight lesson and then move on to the next student. Uh, I yeah. kind of wish there was a little bit more constructive criticism in that aspect. And I had a Google doc where I could be like, all right, I sucked at steep turns. I sucked at this or not even I sucked. I did this really well. You know, you kind of have like, it's like cloud ahoy almost, but note for what note wise of what you're actually doing and how you can uh, improve. Yeah. And you know, it's so common. I mean, I think as far as, I mean, obviously I've talked about it now a lot on the internet, but I don't know that many instructors that do it at all. You know, it's funny, like one of my first jobs in aviation was line service, right? So just like, like a like relatively menial job on pumping fuel. But when you show up for your shift at six in the morning, there's this giant pass down book with notes from the previous shift about what went on and, you know, what the state of things are at the airport or whatever. And I think that's like what occurred to me is like, gosh, if these guys and, and nurses too, right? Like I used to date a nurse and they would stay for like an hour after their shift to write all these copious like soap mm-hmm. notes about patients. And um, anyway, it's a great thing. And I think more instructors should adopt it for sure. Yeah, I agree. I love that. And I think if anyone can take anything from what we're saying right now, it, it's that for sure. It's uh, It doesn't have to take too much time. Like you said, 10, 20 minutes for you to document what you saw and uh, just look over that and just improve on that. So I think that could definitely help. All right, moving on to the next question. I probably should have uh, ranked these other than just take pictures of them, but here we are. So there'll be some awkward (laughs) moments of me just looking at my phone. Um, So I thought this question was interesting and this is different for everyone. Uh, It is every pilot has a weak point. What was yours and how do you compensate for it? Wow, that's a good one. I think, um, you know, I'm always, I'm still hard on myself with rudder usage. Like it's still something I play with and, I, I remember doing a checkout for like years ago for like an old World War II pilot. And uh, he came in and he was just like wanting to get checked out in an airplane. And I remember being blown away. Like I never saw that guy look at the ball once, but it was like perfect coordination, you know? And so I'm always hard on myself saying like, how many years do I have to fly before I can like achieve some level of, of consistent success there? So I guess that's one. And, and another one for me, this is just a known like hazardous attitude for me is I have like an anti-authority thing. Like if you tell me, if you tell me I can't do it, I'm just going to be like, what do you mean I can't do it? (laughs) You know? So like I have to be careful. Yeah. I have to be careful with that one. Sometimes air traffic control tells me to fly a vector that's away from the direction I want to go. And my instincts are to like cancel flight following or tell them on evil or, you know, (laughs) Um, screw you. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Basically. Who are you to tell me I'm free? It's like terrible vectors. It's like, you still want to shoot this bird show? Yeah. Then I'm going to yell at you. That's funny. (laughs) Right. I'd say for me, that was, that's a tough question. I haven't trained in a while. I would have to piggyback off of studying. I just didn't want to put the work in. I don't know if it was me being arrogant about my skills. Like I thought that my skills were good enough and I didn't have to put the work in. Uh, I was humbled really quick, especially my instrument training when I failed my check ride. And I realized that I needed to put in more work. Uh, aviation, you can't really fake it until you make it. You know, there's going to come a point in time where you have to prove your knowledge and you have to prove what you know. And uh, if you don't put the work in, you're not going to 
going to be able to pass a check ride. So I kind of came to that point and realized, hey, you got to take this seriously. You got to study and study even more than I ever thought. So I think that would be mine. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting thing to think about. I'm going to be thinking about that now. That's, that's, yeah, that's right? a question. That's a question that's going to carry through my day. I'm sure. I like that yeah. one. That was a really good one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's another one. It says, after meeting a lot of pilots, what's one quality you see in all of them? So it could be either good quality or bad quality. I guess we can focus on um, just pilots in general. What's one good quality that you could see uh, to make a good pilot? God, you know, the two things that pop into my head right away are um, punctuality. Like I'm a huge, like it, nothing drives me crazier than being made to wait. And, you know, mm. God, I love, I love my wife, but we just disagree sometimes on the way time works, you know? And uh, so, but just the, you know, showing up for places on time, not, not having people wait. Like I always joke with my wife. I say, do you understand that my world is measured in three minute increments, right? Like if I'm going to be more than three minutes late, I have to tell somebody. That's so um, that's a good one. And then I think, you know, if, if people were to ask me, like, is there one secret to flying or is there one skill you have to develop? I would say it's, you know, multitasking. So, I think that pilots have this unique ability to manage multiple things at one time and bring the big picture together. I think it's why I love to cook so much. Like if I, mm -hmm. like on a Sunday afternoon, just the most relaxing thing I can do is cook a meal because it's like you can control every element and have it arrive all at the same place at the same time. And that's just super rewarding. You know? Yeah. I would definitely agree with both of those, especially time management. Um, I have, it's funny because I made you wait like five minutes a day. So you're probably like, come on, what the heck? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, no, right. Yeah. We're here. We're happy. Yeah, it is what it is. Um, for me, I would say to make a good pilot, if you could have, I kind of generalize it, but yeah. if you have to have one good quality that I would want to see in a good pilot or what I think could make a good pilot, it's uh, being honest, telling the truth. Don't blame anything on anyone else. It kind of goes back to that constructive criticism when you're in the air. Uh, just accept it. Just uh, own up to it. Say, don't argue in the air. Just say yes. And then kind of prove yourself on the ground. But from what I've noticed is companies, uh, the one I fly at airlines, uh, CFI schools are trusting you with very expensive equipment with lives in the back of the plane. Um, they do not want someone that they can't trust. They don't want someone that it could be anything. It could be you just don't show up on time all the time. Maybe they caught you lying every once in a while. I would just recommend you to always be truthful, always be honest. Um, and you will probably not lose your job if you mess up and you're honest about it. But if you lie about it, there's a really, really good chance you're going to lose your job. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, what you said is so true. There was like, this like one of my favorite aviation stories ever was one time I was at Oshkosh and I was there with this dude who was an attorney and uh, we went to the the shower in the morning right and I remember he was shaving and he put his wallet and his cell phone up on that little railing by the mirrors mm -hmm. you know and his wallet was like fat with cash right so there's like just a wad of cash in there you can see it from ten feet away and he put his phone there and he shaves. And then we go about our day, like our whole day. We went back to the, the, the tent. We got dressed. We went into the show. Lunchtime rolls around. He didn't notice it till lunchtime. Lunchtime rolls around. He goes for his wallet. He's like, oh man, I left my wallet at the bathhouse. We went back to the bathhouse and it was all still sitting there, right? No way. I swear, man, like seven, <laughs> like 700,000 pilots at Oshkosh. I mean, where else in the world could that happen, right? I mean, so like what you said is so accurate. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. That guy's yeah. lucky. <laughs> that's, 
<laughs> right. I wouldn't test that theory, but I know. I'm, I'm going to be his witness. Yeah. Someone's like, man, I could, uh, that's a lot of cash. I need that new Garmin or I need that new four flight subscription. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, I don't know what it says about pilots. One is yeah. maybe the other is they don't need money that bad. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that's funny though. Yeah, that guy's yeah. very, very lucky. Yeah. Uh, here's another good one. It is tips for recognizing when the visual illusions are kicking in. And when I read this question, I almost think of you're flying in the clouds. Um, maybe what you're seeing on your instruments or what you're feeling isn't matching up with what you're seeing. Uh, you might be able to take this in a different way, but that's kind of what I think first. It's uh, kind of trusting your senses and uh, what's going on. You as an instructor who teaches instrument also teaches visual cues. What kind of process do you go for when you are when you're teaching that and just uh, the visual illusions that you can have and how to kind of counteract that. Yeah, it's um, it's a tough one to answer because right, there's so many visual illusions from yeah. runway width illusion to like upslope illusions, flicker vertigo, the, the kind of illusions you were just talking about. Um, also like at night when you're flying above patchy clouds and the clouds are breaking up the city lights, it can be really disorienting that you don't realize mm -hmm. how much the city lights orient you at night, you know, and there've been like a number of like cargo pilots coming into Oakland over the years that have crashed because they thought they were someplace other than they were visually. Um, but anyway, I think if I had to prescribe one thing to sort of combat all of that, with the exception of maybe the runway illusions, mm -hmm. um, is just to sort of think of things like the scientific method, you know, like everything. And this is a tough discipline to, to like cultivate, but like everything's a hypothesis until you can prove it true in a different way. So like if you look out the window and you think I'm where I am, there should be some other way you can verify that. Or yeah. like you said, if you're looking at your instruments and you feel like you're turning, like there should be two instruments in that airplane that tell you you're not, you know? And uh, so just having a little bit of redundancy that way, building that in as a practice, I think. Yeah. And also what you're saying about city lights, there's also, if you go into a major airport, say break out of the clouds and there's no lights and you get a very weird illusion that you get very disoriented. What's up? What's down? This has happened to me. Well, it hasn't like actually happened to me, but there's a scenario where it could happen. One was going into Kansas City, not Kansas City downtown, but MCI. It is just black as black could be around that airport. And then a couple of weeks ago, we were flying into uh, FOK, West Hamptons, and there is nothing. And then all of a sudden, there's this huge runway. So those are some illusions that are can be really tricky if you don't know what to look for. And like I said, you just got to verify. That's a, it's a hypothesis until you can prove it true. I actually really like that. It's good good advice for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's and that's interesting. That black hole illusion you mentioned. I mean. What do you do for that other than fly the Vazzy and the Pappy? That because that one can be really weird, right? Yeah. Like where you're just looking at a runway floating in the darkness is like yeah. you, your, your mind can start seeing all sorts of stuff. And there's one of those things that you don't know how you're going to react until you're there, until you're in that situation. And you don't, yeah. that, that situation might happen on your first night solo cross country. It might happen on uh, flying with your, with your, your wife, your partner, whatever it may be. So you don't know when it is. That's why one of the important things about aviation is you always need to have everything going with you. Uh, I always try to have like a strike, like three strikes. If there's three strikes going against me in my day, um, in this flight, or if I'm making mistakes, if I make three of them, then I probably need to remove myself from this airplane because things just aren't going my way and with aviation you want everything going your way at all times just, you want to land yeah. with that headwind you don't want to land with the tail you know everything needs to be going your way yeah yeah no i i, I totally agree yeah i like that three strikes rule it's not very scientific but it's, no. it's valuable right yeah. it's got 
it's like it covers that sort of intuition part too, where it's yeah. like I, I, I know myself, and if I've made three sort of even they can be like little things too, right? Like you just oh, yeah. know yourself and be like, I would not normally do that. And that's yeah. one. It could be just you messing up a frequency. It could be uh, you putting flaps in too early or forgetting to put flaps in. I mean, you put, forget, yeah. I would say forget putting the gear down, but that usually uh, ends, <laughs> ends your day a different way. <laughs> that's a foul ball for sure. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's not good. You're definitely not flying after that one. <laughs> right. Uh, I got another one here. It is, what are some ways I can not lose proficiency during lessons? Uh, I'm not sure I understand that question. So, so let's say, um, let's kind of think of it as someone maybe that doesn't get to fly as much as they want. They don't get to fly every single day. They are working a couple right. jobs to try to pay for their training. They fly once a week. What's something that they can do in between that week to make sure that they stay proficient and don't lose any of their talent, any of their skills between saying flying from one Monday to the next Monday? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one because it's so hard, you know, like, I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say there's not a whole lot you can do when it comes to yeah. flying skills, like, like, you know, the actual mechanical inputs, like, you know, how hard you have to pull on the flare, how fast you have to pull on the flare, how much rudder you use, all that sort of stuff. Let's just give up on that. The, the other stuff though, which is like 75% of the problem is all workable from home. And, and, uh, just as an example, like, you know, people talk to me about how do I save money? How do I save money? And we, we mentioned earlier about, uh, practicing or rehearsing, reviewing things in between lessons. But, you know, sometimes I go out there and we're sitting in the run up area and we're like in a fancy Cessna 182. It's $250 an hour on the Hobbs and <laughs> plus my time. Right. And so this guy, this person's spending like $400 an hour or sometimes more. And I realize when we get to the run up, they haven't looked at the run up checklist. Right. So we're sitting there and they're like, okay, let's see here. Uh, like fuel pump is off and like, where's the fuel pump? Okay. There's the fuel pump. And I'm thinking, wow, we could like cut this entire time here. We could cut it in half easily. And that's like where you save money. And um, it's also where I think you can practice and get ahead. So, you know, there's all the ritual aspect of flying. What is your pre-takeoff briefing going to be? What, you know, have you looked at the the run-up checklist and actually matched it to all the switches on a picture of the cockpit? Uh, what are your takeoff call-outs? Have you looked over the climb, cruise, descent checklist? Is there anything weird on the before landing checklist? Like all of that, those aspects to flying, I think can can and should be practiced. And you know, like when you go to mm -hmm. like, like when you go to flight safety or whatever, or like an airline pilot, you know, they start start folks in procedural trainers before you even go to the simulator, before you even mm -hmm. go to the airplane, right? And if we can just adopt some of that, I think for GA and light airplanes, it would make a huge difference. What's your thought to kind of keep on this conversation? What's your thought process of uh, first training of using triggers and flows? That seems to be very popular in airlines where I fly. You know, you have a trigger for an event that then triggers either a checklist or a flow for you to do. Usually it's a trigger for a brief, then a checklist to back up your brief to make sure you hit everything that you need to hit. What do you think about training from zero to a private pilot license for heart, to really harp on uh, flows, triggers, and checklists to make sure? I know checklists are very much preached on, but I feel like flows aren't necessarily preached on too much in early training. Would you agree with that? Or do you think it's uh, necessary for flows to be talked about? Yeah. I mean, well, in my training program, it's, it's, it's kind of central. And, and I think to answer your question is I think that stuff's extremely valuable and it should mm -hmm. be introduced really early. Um, if I had my way, like if I had, if I could convince most students to do this, we would actually practice all of those things on the ground before we ever went to the airplane, the same way you do at flight safety. 
mm-hmm. um, because that's that's what works the best, right? And and let's like the airlines do it that way, the, the the flight safety does it that way, the military does it that way, and that's because it works. And if you look at how simple a light airplane is, there's not that many. You know what I mean? There's like there's you could probably write them out a list of ten things that you really <laughs> need to to you know yeah. to figure out. It's not like it's a complex jet or anything. Um, and the 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 stuff that I teach is really modeled after single pilot operators. So I think there's a huge misconception in aviation, like in general aviation, that is where we we take these crew procedures. And we just sort of adopt them. Like checklists are important, right? So people will read a checklist, but that's not the way single pilot operators do it because there's no redundancy in reading a checklist. There's only redundancy in reading a checklist if you've got a pilot monitoring, mm-hmm. which is the whole point in a, why in a crew situation, you've got a pilot flying, a pilot monitoring. But if there's no pilot monitoring, then the only way to achieve redundancy is to have a flow check to guess at it intentionally or an acronym like GUMPS or CIGARS or some, some way of guessing and then pick up a written checklist after you've guessed and read that checklist. And both parts are equally important. I've seen people read lists and skip lines, which is not mm-hmm. good because they have no idea that they skipped a line, right? right? And I also hate it. I hate it almost even worse when I teach my students flow checks. And then I notice after time, they don't pick up the list and read it or they just do the flow check because that's just as bad the other direction. Um, if you get hired by Ameriflight or by any other successful single pilot operation, when they do their six month checks, they expect you to guess first, check second. And mm-hmm. there are triggers and there are flows and there are checklists and it's all a really important part of the process. When do you think that was, when did you personally start teaching that way more? When did you kind of realize flows and checklists? I mean, checklists have always been big, but I feel like more recently flows are starting to enter in early, early on in training. Have you always had that mindset or is that a more recent kind of uh, addition? Uh, no, it's well, it's I was trained that way. So like I had one mentor in my life, like who was really powerful, like had a big impact on on my flying. And so I did my private here in Chicago, or not here, but in Chicago, <laughs> where you are. <laughs> well, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, and my instructor was great. I mean, but she was 23. She's on her way to United. She like knew what she knew. She was cool. And I was a really hungry student. So I think I was pretty easy and moved through pretty quick. Yeah. <clears throat> but when I got to California, I met this guy who was uh, an old Air Force guy and um, just a career instructor at that point. His name is Richard, and he was just hard on me. Like I think I spent two years doing my instrument with him because he essentially just like like broke my back and like rebuilt <laughs> me, you know. Yeah. And uh, and so that, that was a huge thing that he was talking about. And then you know when I started teaching, a lot of my friends went to Ameriflight, if I can say a company name, but Ameriflight used to have a base at Oakland and I used to prep them for the interviews like and teach them a lot of the stuff that Richard taught me. And so I got a copy of their SOPs oh, and I cool. realized, you know, and I realized, wow, Richard's just teaching me all the things that the single pilot operators are doing. And you look into a company like that and you've got like a bunch of fairly young pilots flying really hard missions in like high performance piston twins through uh, night IFR with a lot of deferred maintenance items. You know, like it's hard <laughs> flying. It's not, it's not easy, yet they have an amazing safety record. So it's like, yeah. how, do they, how do they achieve that? And it's, uh, so anyway, I started looking at that, but it's, it's been a part of my program um, pretty much all the way through. Uh, it, you know, if I can shamelessly plug, you know, the, the, the book that I wrote, Setting the Standard, and also our ground school app, there's a, there's a whole chap. The book is all about standard operating procedures, yeah. and uh, there's a whole chapter in the app on that stuff because I think it's really, really important. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, it's absolutely huge, and I think it's changing for the better. I think it's being adapted more. I feel like um, 
later, or not later, but earlier in aviation, it was more of like a cowboy mentality almost. Like you just get in, you fly the plane by feel. Uh, so the stick and rudder pilots, you know, kind of just they felt the airplane and they flew. And as planes got a little bit more complex, when you bring that kind of cowboy mentality into a complex airplane, yeah, you can fly, you can keep uh, coordinated and you can fly really well, but you need to back it up with what we've been talking about with flows, with checklists, with everything. And it'll make you a safer pilot. It will make your, your company feel better. And it's a proven, like you said, it's been proven by multiple companies and uh, successful companies that this is the best way to operate. Yeah, for sure. And like, and and if you're somebody who's watching this and you're on your way to a professional career, um, this is just going to get you miles ahead of the game. Like, mm-hmm. like one of our, one of the guys that works on our content team just went and got hired by a company. And, uh, you know, even though he'd been working with me on the content for the app and he knows exactly what I teach and all that sort of stuff, he still called me and I get this call a lot, <laughs> called me a- after he went through his training. He was like, dude, the stuff you've been teaching has been like golden. You know, there was like people in my class that had no idea about standard operating procedures. He's like, and basically uh-huh. everything you're teaching me is like what we're doing. So I think, um, you know, it's if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if it's working mm-hmm. for the pros, it's working for everybody else, whether or not you're going to be pro, like we should yeah. emulate it, you know? Absolutely. No, absolutely. And that was going to be my one thing is how do you go about teaching someone, my dog's on like the camera again. <laughs> how do you go about <laughs> teaching? So yeah, not the best setup in the world, but it has to do. Kemba's uh, <laughs> having fun. Um, mentality as an instructor. This wasn't a question, just kind of something I wanted to ask. How do you make sure you get everything done and also teach them to be a professional pilot? Because obviously you need to uh, hit the, whatever the standards are for a check ride. And maybe when you're a private pilot, you don't really focus on professionalism. You don't focus on being smooth. Well, do you think it benefits them to focus on that early rather than say, now you're going for a commercial check ride and the examiner is going to be looking for you to also be a professional pilot, to do stuff smoother, to do stuff a little bit better. Uh, I mean, you have that in the, the standards where you have to do it. What is it? 50 feet instead of hundred feet. Uh, it's been so long right. since I've done those check rides, but what's your mentality in training someone that's a private pilot going do you teach professionalism from early on or is that something you kind of work on later? Um, it's something that that I teach from from pretty much day one. And I have I, I make an agreement with the student and I, I really get like I, I use logic. And if they if they don't agree with me, we're probably not a good fit. But the idea is I explain to them, <laughs> explain to them why the single pilot operators, the professionals, are so safe. And they're they're not necessarily safe because of stick and rudder skills, although their pilots probably have pretty good stick and rudder skills. They're safe because the company lives through accidents. That's my belief is that, you know, when a, when a general aviation pilot unfortunately crashes and dies, the crash, it just ends, right? You know, we probably don't even know what happened this month, but a company lives through it and the company develops procedures and operations that protect against that sort of thing. So I believe that if you want to be the safest possible pilot, then we have to emulate what the professionals are doing, regardless of whether or not you're going to be professional. And I think I I probably crank it down just a a little bit for people that aren't going to be pro or maybe it's probably more accurate to say I crank it up for people that are going to be pro. But, you know, things like like uh, pre-taxi briefings and um, sterile cockpit and takeoff call outs. I mean, all of this stuff is a part of my training program and I think should be a part of all general aviation training, not because it's professional for the sake of being professional, but because there are stories we can talk about and accidents that I can point to that those procedures evolved out of, right? Like you want to talk pre-taxi briefing, look at the Lexington, Kentucky crash 2007, where the 
Comair jet took the uh, wrong runway, right? Had those guys briefed that taxi carefully and had a sterile cockpit on the way out, that accident might not have happened, right? Uh, so that's the idea is just that we stand up on the shoulders of the failures of the pilots before us. And, and if the companies have already figured that out, then let's just borrow the procedures that they're using and uh, sort of retool them for GA, you know? Absolutely. And yeah. And so there's not a whole lot of difference, I think, between the way I would train a regular pilot, a private pilot, and somebody who was going to be pro, except that for somebody who's going to be pro, I might, you know, teach them like, like, here's, here's one example. Like if you were not going to go pro and you told me the only equipment I'm ever going to fly is glass panel equipment, then I probably wouldn't teach you all the round dial stuff I know, right? I'm probably right. not going to teach you all the visualizations of DME arcs on a VOR because it's just going to waste your time and money. You're never going to do it anyway. But if you're going to be pro, I, I think it would be doing you a disservice to not show you that stuff because who knows? You might end up flying who knows what. You never know. You never know. And you don't want the first time you looked at a round dial to be the day you get that job in the saber liner, you know? Oh, uh, it's so funny. So story time, when I was, um, I was training for the Pilatus when I flew single pilot freight, uh, I've never flown a full DME VOR approach before. It was always kind of like, no one does that anymore. You're never really going to do that. I told my instructor that for IFR wasn't an issue for my check ride. Never really saw it, never needed it. Past my 135 check ride on the Pilatus, I told them that I was like, I have never flown an ILS like full DME circle, whatever whatever crazy approach you want to enter. And they're like, oh, you'll never have to unless you go to Mexico. <laughs> and what do you what do you think? And he's like, just enter into the, the FMS, which our FMS was just a 530 and a 430. And he's right. like, yeah, you'll never know unless you go to this airport in Mexico and the weather's yeah. bad. What do you think my first trip was in the Pilatus? Oh, no. <laughs> Flying 135 was <laughs> to, to this airport, which is surrounded by mountains. And all they had was a DME Arc VOR approach. And I was like, wow. what? Yeah, it was yeah, crazy. Yeah, that's Murphy's law, man. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And you, you can say the same thing about NDBs in Canada. Like, they're still flying NDB approaches in Canada, right? So, yeah, it's insane. Absolutely yeah. insane. I have another good question. There's a lot of good questions. I should have, uh, like, I feel like we're not going to have time to ask all these, but I'll take pictures of them. Uh, this one yeah. is, what stress, what stress management techniques would you teach a student that's nervous? So a new pilot that's nervous to fly, just power adjustments make them nervous, turbulence makes them nervous. Uh, how would you go about that? How would you teach a new pilot that's a little bit nervous of uh, flying or anything to do with the airplane? I tend to gently show them the full spectrum of the envelope. Um, there's a uh, interesting statistic. I don't even know where it comes from, so you probably want to fact check me on it. But something like 85% of pilots have some level of vertigo. Um, and I'm one of them, by the way. Like If you ask me to go out on your balcony and you live on the 45th floor, the only way I can go out there is on my stomach. Like There's no way I can go out on that balcony, right? Really? Or you ask, yeah. You ask me to climb like a 15-foot ladder and get on the roof, I'm going to be like tingling in my feet. But you give me the keys to an extra 300 and ask me to go do aerobatics and I don't feel any of those things, right? So why is it? Uh, and the reason they think that most pilots have that sort of you know, trepidation about heights is because they can actually visualize the fall, which is sort of like what happens to me if I go out on a balcony. I just sort of like visualize the whole thing crumbling. And I don't know who built that thing. I don't know if I trust <laughs> the engineering, right? So all of that to say is, I think the reason I don't feel that in an airplane is because I trust the engineering like 
implicitly. Like I really trust the airplane. I trust that predictable inputs give me predictable results. And if I do mm-hmm. the same thing I've always done, I know how this game is played. I know how this works. And so therefore my body just believes me. Um, so that's the approach I tend to take. If somebody's uncomfortable, I won't like show them like, Hey, here's a spin. Like, watch this. We can recover. It, it'll be like much more gentle. Maybe the first thing is just pulling the, pulling the power all the way out oh, yeah. and just showing like how we can glide and see like the plane doesn't fall out of the sky. The plane glides, um, gentle stalls, you know, slow them down until they're getting into some gentle stalls. And eventually you build up to the place where you can do aerobatics and show people, Hey, look, you can do like an aileron roll here in this particular, not in a Cessna in like a aerobatic yeah. airplane. Right. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Right. And, and, and it always works. And that's the, that's the thing that Richard always told me is that a pilot doesn't need to know the truth, but just needs to know that predictable inputs give you predictable results. And I think once you believe that, you you know, once you believe that you're comfortable. I do like that. I was actually a nervous or where I would say wary, maybe nervous isn't the right word, but when I was first doing stalls, I was terrified of spins. I never wanted to do a spin in my mind. A spin was the most dangerous thing you could ever give to your, put yourself into. And I actually right. didn't train spins for my private. I realized that you didn't really have to. So I was just like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to touch it. Uh, I didn't yeah. do spin training until I was going for my CFI. I never ended up finishing my CFI, but I was down in North Carolina and obviously you have to have a spin endorsement for your, before you do your check ride. And I went out yeah. with this, uh, <laughs> he's an older pilot. He's a great pilot. His name's Jim Eifert. He's the wrote and stuff for Honeywell. He's based out of Texas, but he was doing all these spins and he didn't understand wow. that I wasn't very, un- I was pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> I was just like, Oh, what's going on? <laughs> but to his credit, like me yeah. learning what he was doing and I kind of understood it's like, all right, this isn't necessarily as terrifying as I thought. It's like the plane right. is just in a different, I have to figure out, it's just like, a, like it's similar to a stall. I have to figure out a way to get the airflow back over both wings so I can go ahead and break this. And once you realize that and you get that, this is a sight picture mainly for a lot of people when it comes to spins and you're yeah. just like, Whoa, why am I looking at the on spinning. <laughs> it's like you it's, can recover. Yeah. Right. I think it was Richard Collins who said there's nothing like like of course pilots are uncomfortable with stalls. There should be nothing comfortable about asking the wing to stop flying, right? Like that's like not that. yeah. Right. That's like not so so I think that's totally normal. And like you said, once you figure out what the trick is and how it works every single time, then you're good. I would agree. All right, moving on. I have here's a good one. What's the best piece of advice you have received in your training? Or no, not even just training, in aviation in general. So it doesn't have to be training. It can just be any advice in aviation. I think the best advice I got was um, to just meet as many pilots as I could. I mean, this is really applying to people that are going pro. But it's funny, I look back at that job doing line service as probably one of the best jobs I've ever had. Like one of them, it informed so much about my flying because um, I was meeting a lot of net jets. It was actually executive jet at the time, but you know, there was like a lot of exec jet pilots flying in. Uh, We had a a fleet of Gulfstream ones that was piloted by mostly former Eastern airlines guys who were really disgruntled. Right. And like really upset (laughs) with like how life went and, um, and then private pilots and whatnot. So I really got to, to like, see a broad spectrum of what aviation had to offer. And I think that's how I ended up as a career instructor is that like, I just, you realize like, you know, when you get started in this, you think, well, Hey, I guess going to the airlines is what I'm going to do. And that's fine for anybody that's on that path. But as you know, cause you're not going to the airlines. Um, there are many, many different paths you can take in this industry. Yeah, definitely. And to kind of further that, I would say, 
be your own CEO. You know, like no one is going to invest as much. I mean, there are some people that invest in you, but you have to put in the work to put yourself in the best position possible. And that can encompass a lot of things. That can be getting a job as a line service tech so you can meet people. That can be going to the FBO so you can talk to pilots when they're done flying. That can be washing airplanes. It's, it's pretty much just putting yourself in the best position to capitalize on anything that might come up. Every job I've ever had has actually been from the people I knew. And I created those relationships by just continuing to be there, asking questions, just offering any help that I could possibly do. So if anything ever popped up, I was the first person to think of. If you're not putting yourself in the best position to capitalize on luck or to capitalize on opportunity, then they're not going to happen for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's totally true. So like, um, yeah, you know, um, I know you interviewed Michael Maniero, but I think his story is so awesome. You know, like how, He's like just helping a young kid, helping out the Patriots jet team. And he saw that they had a saber liner. So he ordered the saber liner manual, (laughs) right? From, from the internet and just learned the whole thing, hoping for some opportunity someday. And sure enough, one day the captain's like, why does this thing not work? And he's like, I know. Yeah, I mean that turns heads, you know. You just put yourself out there and you work hard. Like that that gets noticed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think this is a really interesting question. And the reason I'm going to bring it up is because I actually want, I actually disagree with what he's saying. Um, it's, it's not too deep or anything, but it's what's the best free way to get a head start in training? There are some free ways, but I would also recommend that early on, maybe it's important to invest in your training to couple it with free uh, YouTube videos. YouTube videos and free training is only going to get you so far, but I would mm-hmm. highly recommend investing in the ground squat like yours, uh, investing in, in something that's proven, something that has set up students for success to, to be the best pilot they can possibly be. Anyone can watch a YouTube video. That's great. But a lot of times YouTube videos are very limited in the depth that they can go into or those free kind of trainings. I mean, everyone, who do you, everyone can write a free training, but if someone puts their name behind it, you have to pay for it. There's more accountability there. I just, I I really am kind of wary of all the free training that you can go after, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes, makes a lot of sense. Definitely. And as somebody who's building the ground school app, I can't imagine like trying to do it. If like, if we had to offer it for free, I mean, like you, you have to cut corners on, on behind the scenes if that's what you're doing. Right. Um, but again, I think that people underestimate how much work they can really do on their own. You know, you could probably just Google right now Cessna 172 SPOH and come up with an information manual and just read the entire thing from cover to cover. Yeah. You could diagram the systems. You could like start working those checklists and and you can find a picture of a cockpit online for free. Um, you know, when I went for my ATP, um, I wanted to spend obviously as little as possible, and I'm going <laughs> in an airplane that's that's like three hundred and fifty dollars an hour, right? And, and I'm a CFI, so like I, it was really important to me to not spend anything like beyond what I needed to spend to to be as good as I needed to be to get that uh, certificate. Mm-hmm. And um, but but I hired a CFI that was $120 an hour, right? It was like one of my colleagues, and I could have hired a CFI that was $65 an hour. But I'm convinced that that Kevin, my colleague, who's $120 an hour, I'm convinced he saved me money. Um, and one way he did it, for example, was the first three lessons we did were just sitting on the ground, just sitting there uh, with a picture of the cockpit and and just going through every checklist on the whole flight. He's like, we're now we're in the run-up area. You know, now we're taking off. Now we're in the practice area. 
okay, I want you to talk me through this maneuver. How are you going to do it? You're going to turn left 90 degrees, turn back right 90 degrees. Now, now where's the fuel pump? Right? We're going through the whole thing in our minds. And for three hours, right? He cost me 360 bucks, mm-hmm. but that's, that's like one hour in the airplane. And by the time I got into the airplane, it was like, bam, bam, bam. I just, I knew everything. So that was a long winded way of saying to the person who's asking this question that maybe go like after you've read the POH and after you've diagrammed the systems and after you've practiced all those checklists, go find a CFI and, and do maybe like one short lesson and then ask that CFI for like, what can, you know, just, just take what they've given you and go practice that yet again. So you're, it's not free, but you're spending as little as possible to sort of like wring it out and get the maximum amount out of each lesson. Basically. Yeah, no, I'll totally agree. And to kind of carry off a little bit about that, no one asked this question, but it kind of came up in mind. You're a new CFI. Um, you're thinking of what you should charge. What's your thought process as a brand new CFI? Do you think when you're coming into a market, you need to have a cheaper value, improve yourself and get as many students as possible and prove how great you are and then increase your, your, your hourly rate? Or do you think it's best to, to be in the middle and uh, continue just to provide great quality? Or is there, is, does it say something to be the most expensive? Does the most expensive equal best training. Um, I guess you have a lot of experience in that because you've been doing this for a while. What do you see uh, different prices for CFIs for their rate? Does uh, one equate bad training? Does one equate a different mindset than the other one? Kind of what's your thought process on that? You know, I think it, uh, yeah, I think it depends on the market in terms of the actual number and you can't come right out of school and charge the most. So you have to look at what's going on in, in your marketplace. <laughs> you, you can't come out and say I'm top of the top of the line here because um, you just, you're not, that's not going to go very well. People are going to see right <laughs> away that that's not who you are, yeah. but, but at the same time, you have to charge a little bit more than you think you should, right? You have to charge a, a, like a decent wage. And I would also say you have to charge from the minute you show up until the minute you leave, unless of course your student goes out and pre-flights by themselves. Right. Um, but, but here's, that's actually a good segue because what that will do if you value yourself and value your own time is you're going to say, Holy cow, like I'm charging this person $90 an hour. Right. I better like show up, you know, like I can't show up and not know what the heck I'm doing. So you're going to like prep that lesson. You're going to think about that student. You're going to think about what they did last time. Uh, When you show up, instead of telling them to go pre-flight the plane by by yourself, you might actually think, well, I'm going to walk out there and I'm going to booby trap the plane and see if they can can find my booby traps or I'm going to quiz them on the oral. Like I'm going to show up here because I know that I'm charging a lot and I want to earn that money. And then most pilots aren't, uh, afraid to pay for good training, right? They just don't want to pay more for the same crap they could get for cheaper, right. right? Like, so if you're delivering a better product like that, then the pilots hopefully won't mind paying you more. And if they do, maybe it's not a good fit. But then that becomes just like a healthier ecosystem. Now all of a sudden you can like pay your bills. Maybe you can go get some additional training from like some aerobatic training or make yourself better. And the whole system benefits from you just starting by valuing yourself and like valuing your time. It's hard though, right? Like I'd imagine that's pretty tough to put a price on your time to, to kind of come to terms with charging maybe a little bit more or a little bit less. Uh, it can't be an easy decision right at the bat. Yeah, it's not. It's not. And, uh, you know, and then there's some like, there's some bad moments in there as you learn that. Like I remember, uh, you know, one guy, business owner, wealthy guy came in uh, when I was a young instructor and we went out flying and I was trying to have this mindset. I wasn't top of the line, but I wasn't as cheap as you could get. I was somewhere slightly above the middle. 
And, you know, I think in, in the airplane while we were out flying, he gave me a couple like business tips, you know, about how to do business or something. And so like when we landed, he used that as leverage to like nickel and dime me. Like here I am like a 20, <laughs> 25 year old kid. And I was like, okay, that's going to be like $105. He's like, yeah, but I gave you like business tips. Like I told you like, you know, like, how about I pay you? Right. You know? Yeah. And it's like, you got to fight against folks like that. Like you got to be yeah. like, whatever, dude. Like I've been with you for three hours. Like yeah. I could have been doing something else. But, you it's know, like technically you like, wasted my time more than anything. So you should pay me for wasting my time with your crappy <laughs> business tips. It's, like, it's not like he told right. you to buy Apple stock or anything like that. You know, it's like, <laughs> he did it. I don't even remember yeah. what he said. So they couldn't have been that good. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, I got one more question out of mine that we can kind of move to some of yours if you want to, or we can wrap it up. Uh, let's see. I lost it. Um, where'd it go? It was along the lines of, all right, here it is. What advice would you give a CFI that has 1500 hours right now? Now this could be someone looking to progress their career in aviation. This could be someone trying to get on with the regionals, trying to fly freight, trying to do something professionally. Um, what could they do to, I guess it could be a twofold question. What could they do to market themselves the best? How could they get their resume to look the best? So when jobs and people start hiring again, they will be marketable to kind of set themselves apart or what can they do just flying wise in general? Yeah, that's good. I don't know. You, you're you probably much better suited to know like what they could do marketing wise, you know, because uh, yeah. that's like, I'm not, I'm not the guy that put my resume together and went to any other company, but I will say this. I think that um, the companies I've mentioned, like Ameriflight, the single pilot part 135 cargo operators are underestimated in terms of how fast they can get you where you want to be. Um, and I know that it's not for a lot of people. Most people want to put on that uniform and shake hands as, as customers walk in the door and say, you know, wave to the kids on the way out the door or whatever. But if you think about like getting a job where you're the single pilot and you're flying like a beach 1900, you're getting, you're getting PIC turbine time in a multi-engine aircraft in some pretty hard flying environments from day one. I mean, there's no other pilot. There's no SIC time. There's no waiting to upgrade to captain. Um, so that can be kind of a way to get yourself ahead if you want to get like ahead of the crowd or move fast. Now, those companies might not be hiring, um, in which case I would just, I don't know if this is good advice or bad, but I would use it as an opportunity to flex my wings. You know, like my buddy Justin flew a beaver on floats as a tour guide in San Francisco, cool. you know, you know, so there's just some fun stuff to just like kindle your love of aviation and put some cool things on your resume so that maybe you stand out to another pilot when you're sitting down talking to the chief pilot. Yeah. And I mean, you're preaching to the choir from me. Uh, I mean, I highly recommend single pilot IFR. That's the hardest flying I've ever done. I was the best pilot. I mean, I still think I'm a good pilot now flying where I am, but <laughs> it just, it's the way it prepares you. It's like, I mean, you're all up there flying in the worst possible conditions and some, it can be difficult. Your lack of yeah. sleep, uh, lack of food, you're running on Maxwell house FBO coffee from 10 hours ago. Uh, just right. things like we said earlier, things aren't always going your way when you're flying single pilot freight or even just single pilot in general. So I, I highly recommend anyone doing that. If they have the opportunity to do it, it's going to really make you a great pilot and you're going to learn a lot about yourself and a lot about your flying. And it's another one of those where you can't fake it till you make it. It's like you have to do in that industry. You have to continually show up and produce. Um, what I would say about right now, say if you have 1500 hours, I think you need to understand like there's not much you can really do 
flying wise to maybe make yourself stick out. Yeah, you can probably get some more ratings, but you probably don't want to spend any more money. You know, it's already financially tough. It's already, uh, you're probably mentally checked out at that point. You know, you're kind of down because you thought that you could get this this awesome job by 1500 hours with a signing bonus and you'd be flying 175s and going to Key West and Mexico and doing all these cool trips. Uh, so what I would recommend is do something that brings you some sort of joy right now that you can add to your resume. Uh, it might even be volunteering. It might be volunteering at a church. It could be uh, the Brothers and Sisters Club. It could just be going to your FBO, um, showing some some kids that don't necessarily see aviation and you give them the exposure to aviation, something that you can show your love for the community, something that you can kind of set yourself apart from this and also something that can bring you joy in this moment where it seems like there's no joy just because everything seems going against you. So I would highly recommend finding a way to volunteer to give back because companies, they look at your flying, but I mean, if you're a CFI of 1500 hours, uh, unless you know someone, your resume will not stick out, but maybe they could read and maybe you could see um, you volunteer your church or you do some other cool stuff. Yeah. And then they're reading that and they're like, Oh cool. I, I like that. And this other person just has the flying. So right now I would really look into doing something like that, that can bring you some sort of happiness, some sort of joy. And also it can uh, further your resume by doing that. Yeah, that's great advice. That's great advice. And you know, you, like, um, you know, backing up to the first thing you're saying about your, your flying skills as, as when you were doing the, um, I don't know what you're doing, but single pilot 135, mm-hmm. is that, is that where you came from? Yeah. Um, there are companies out there like that, that have a real flying culture, like where the person that's going to be interviewing you cares what kind of flying you did. Like it's like Southwest comes to mind or Jet Suite X, right? These are companies where, it's like the pilot's pilot gets hired, right? So mm-hmm. uh, the kind of flying you're doing could matter in the interview. And then the second thing you said, absolutely 100% true because people are people, right? Someone sees you doing something that helps the community and all of a sudden they think think about you differently, you know? Um, so yeah. I think that's great advice. Yeah, Especially if you can be put in a situation where you're not getting any benefit out of it, you know? It yeah. might help you on a resume. You're not doing this for any selfish reasons. That can be very respected. And it can also be a talking point in the interview. It can help you get the interview and it can help you improve your interview skills and it can help you get that interview nailed and ready to go. Just uh, more stuff to talk about. So, yeah. Yeah, man. Good advice for sure. Sweet. Well, pulled it out of my yeah. my butt right at the last second. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should have said yeah. that, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it just came and to my pulling, mind. Yeah. We're pulling all these out, man. Yeah. Absolutely. So, That's why I, everyone yeah. needs to watch this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, unfortunately, I have to wrap up. We should take yeah. the remainder of these and put them on a list or something. So yeah, we, for uh, sure. You know, like, definitely. Have, have Let's start a Google them. Doc. How about that? There you go. I'm familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool, man. Well, I think this is yeah. uh, this is really great. I think that this is going to be beneficial. I mean, it's just fun for us to talk, uh, bounce ideas off each other. It's really cool the the mindset you have coming from a CFI and me coming from being a professional. Not saying you're not a professional pilot, but um, just being <laughs> what you're saying. Yeah, but <laughs> Jason's like, all right, see ya. Uh, but you know what I mean, though. Someone that's uh, that's flying. Um, I don't know the the best word to say, but flying jets or flying IFR all the time. Just yeah. we're, we're at two different experiences in the same community and to be able right. to have very similar concepts and ideas, it kind of shows the importance of safety and aviation, CRM, all those kind of things, how they work as a CFI, a student pilot, private pilot, up to uh, an airline pilot or a fractional corporate pilot. So I think these are important. Right. Um, 
if you don't subscribe to, to Jason, please do so. If you don't, if you aren't on his ground school app, do so as well. Uh, I got an email today, $50 off. I don't know if you want to say a little bit about that, where they can get the app, nice. follow you and all that kind of stuff. So uh, go ahead and uh, do some more uh, shameless uh, ads for yourself right now. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the $50 thing is uh, just through the new year. So it's like a holiday discount. That's probably not the thing, but there is a free three day trial that's always in there. So um, if you're not sure if the app is for you, you can download it. You can go through all the features. You get um, like three full days to do that. And I think even for people that are certificated pilots, like I said, there's a lot of standard operating procedures in there. There's different exercises you can do. So it's not just like um, not just the stuff for the written test. It's not just the maneuvers that are on the ACS. It's really I'm trying to download kind of everything I know into this product and we're adding content all the time. So just give it a, give it a look and, and you'll, you'll decide for yourself if you think that yeah. uh, it can benefit you. So. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, I, I'm in the mindset of all resources you should try. Uh, give everyone a chance to figure out what works best for you. Uh, if this is what works best for you, I highly recommend it. I think it's a great app. I think it can help you when you're flying, especially maybe when you can't go fly right now. Uh, it, it's different than any app I've ever used. I mean, I have done a lot. I have used a lot. And this is definitely sets itself out apart from a lot of the apps I've used or any resources. So you guys have done a good job. And um, yeah, download it. Give it a shot. All right. Well, thanks, Justin. I appreciate it. Hey, well, Jason, I appreciate you, man. Uh, come back to Chicago so we can go fly around the, the city and do some cool content. I know. That way. You know, I, I miss it. We're usually back there like four times a year, but yeah. know, 2020 happened, you know, it's like, yeah. so. well, next time you're here. Yeah. Next time you're here, we're going flying. No, no questions awesome. about it. All right. Let's do it. Let's do cool, it. Cool, man. Well, thanks for coming. I appreciate it, man. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. All right. Yeah, you bet. Let's do it again sometime. AV Nation, that is a wrap on the Pilot to Pilot podcast featuring Jason Miller from Learn the Finer Points and the Ground School app. Like I said earlier, if you want to ask a question, make sure you follow us on Instagram. That's the only way that we will really be able to see your question because I'm just scrolling through those the whole time. Uh, if you would like to see the video version of this, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pilot to pilot. There's a 50 minute full video podcast with Jason and I talking and we'll probably be doing another one in the next couple weeks as well. AV Nation, that's really all I have for you. Follow us on Instagram, leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't done so already and please share this with all your friends. Let's get pilot the pilot in everyone's ears and get everyone to be a pilot. I mean, why not, right? Why not? Why can't everyone be a pilot? But I hope you guys are having a great day and as always, happy flying.